Are you the kind of person, Gerardo, who's like, oh, I really want to talk about my book? Or are you kind of like, oh, I'm too shy. I'd rather someone else do it. Because I'm happy to do a little description, but we're also happy for you to kind of do the elevator pitch to the audience yourself. Um, I mean, I would love to hear it from you. <laughs> Just <because> okay. <laughs> it's, it's cool to hear from other people. I don't know. Um, okay, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll do it then. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Fire the Canon. This is the podcast where we read the books in the Western <laughs> canon and decide if they belong or not. And sometimes we also talk to authors and sometimes we also do other things too. Um, I am your first host, Jackie. I'm your other first host, Rachel. And today we are going to be having, I'm I'm just going to assume, a great conversation with a debut author. He wrote the book Monstrilio, and his name is Gerardo Samano Cordova. And we've got him with us. Yay. And Yay. we we got a sneak peek of his book, and we both read it, and we're so excited to talk about it. Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We were excited because normally... When we have authors on, it's an author that I reached out to myself, but, you know, like I've read their books and I think, oh, it'd be so cool to have them on. But of course, since you're a debut author, that was not possible. So in this case, (laughs) someone from your publisher reached out to us and said, hey, I think this would be a great fit. And I, you know read about the book and I was like I agree with you it's cool for us yeah very cool for us yeah because yeah so you're a debut author so maybe you kind of understand the excitement of like oh like you're new like you're not famous yet like you know it's hard to start a podcast when you're not famous and we're just like oh people are reaching out to us (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) I'm so happy that you wanted to have me of course yeah so the book Monstrilio is like, it takes place all over the world. It hops from city to city, <laughs> but it's on the surface, it's about a monster boy and his right. family. And he has like a really big family. He keeps collecting adults, but also it's like a story <laughs> about grief and it's a sort of queer coming of age story. So there's a lot going on. The The premise, I'm not going to spoil it. I don't know if you can really spoil I don't really believe in spoiling books, like unless there's a big twist. <laughs> that is not true, Rachel. She she accuses me of spoiling all the time. I'm just going <laughs> to call her out right now. For the audience, <laughs> I personally don't believe in spoiling a book for myself. But the premise that you'll get from reading the book jacket is that two parents, their young son dies and the mother cuts out a piece of the boy's lung and like sort of nurtures it. And then it turns into another boy. But that boy has an issue with wanting to eat people. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He does have an issue. That's always the risk you run when you grow a lung person. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's based on a a Mexican folk tale. Within the book. I wonder if it's, is that something that you came up with yourself or is this a piece of folklore that you like encountered and thought, oh, that would be great for a book? I came up with it myself, like the specifics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're always in Mexican culture, you're always talking about the dead and how they like appear in your dreams or how they talk to you or how like you feel their presence. Mm-hmm. And I'm always interested in people who keep parts of people's bodies, like lockets mm-hmm. of hair or things like that. Maybe not a long, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> I mean, I'd be really interested in someone who did keep a lung, though. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think like some people keep teeth Mm -hmm. or like baby Mm -hmm. teeth even um and so that's interesting to me and so like I combined those two 
ideas mm-hmm. to come up with mm-hmm. this like little folk tale about um, a woman carving out a heart. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that part is something I came up with myself, but I'm mm-hmm. sure like something similar exists somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Like you're, you're sure it exists. You just haven't found it yourself. Yeah, so exactly. You or not it. exactly <laughs> like that. Yeah. But yeah. It's right. like the rule 34 of folktales sort of. It's like, yeah, if you can imagine it, there's probably a folktale about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, especially around death, there are so mm-hmm. many. We, I, I guess we just need to explain death mm-hmm. somehow or like, deal with it in many different ways and so mm-hmm. people come up with things around death all the time in different cultures in different ways just like a scary thing and so we constantly are trying to you know figure out how to deal with it mm-hmm. yeah have you seen the company that when you die like turns your body into gems and puts them in your skull what like for eye sockets <laughs> no what <laughs> like okay wait I think that, okay, I think the company turns your body into gems, but Uh someone, I believe this was like a Reddit relationship question where a wife was like, my husband wants, when he dies, he wants me to turn his body into gems and stick them in his skull eye sockets and keep him as a, like a family heirloom because he thinks it would be cool for the the descendants. Oh my goodness. I've heard that they can take your ashes and like turn them into gems for like jewelry and stuff, but right. somebody wants to just be eye sockets. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, he wants to be gems in his skull, which oh, I, wow. you know, personally, I would think that would be kind of cool. I guess I'd be okay with that. I'd like that. to be a skeleton if anyone is listening. <laughs> yeah, I have, um, we're, we're getting off track immediately, but I have a friend who, um, I don't remember how this happened. We were on a walk in the woods one day and we saw this wind chime that looked like like it was made of bones. I don't think it actually was. Yeah. But I said to her, that would be so cool. If one day <laughs> I should happen to outlive you, could you bequeath to me your skeleton so I could make you into a wind chime? And she said, yes, sure. And I was like, okay, we're on a walk in the woods together though. And no one's going to believe me if after you die, I'm like, oh yeah, Carrie said I could have her skeleton. Yeah. You know, we got to get this in writing somehow. <laughs> so every year on her birthday, I'm just like one year closer to wind chime. <laughs> Oh my god. That would be a cool wind chime though. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed the the physicality of this book. And there's a lot of that, not just in terms of like the gore, because there is gore, but there's also sex. There's also just physical touch without sex. There's just intimacy. There's so much is like focused on the physical. And I thought, you know, we don't really talk a whole lot about sometimes the dismantling of bodies but somehow in your work it kind of comes across as like obviously horrible but also sometimes romantic also sometimes really meaningful yeah I'm really interested in bodies I love bodies Mm -hmm. and I think I mean we have complicated relationships to our bodies we all do Mm -hmm. Um, and we have complicated relationships to illness and death And it all relates to bodies and how we express with each other and how we like communicate with each other or intimate with each other. It has Mm -hmm. a lot to do with bodies. And we kind of like sometimes forget and we just live in our mind. Mm -hmm. And I love um, to think about the bodies as this like really inherent part of who you are because we are our bodies um, in many ways. So I really wanted that to come forward in the book. And it's also, I mean, the book is so much about the body, like taking a piece of lung and the body of Monstrilli, you know, Mm -hmm. how he transforms into this monster. Mm -hmm. So I wanted that transformation to also be physical. I wanted something that you could touch and hold, something that could Mm -hmm. die Mm -hmm. um, or that you could destroy because 
a feeling is really hard to destroy, but like a physical being, <laughs> you can actually destroy it. Yeah. Or you can hug it, you know, and that's the other side of the mm-hmm. coin, you know, you can embrace it, you can love it. Um, and so I wanted to deal with that. And the best way to do it was to have an embodied creature. Um, and yeah. so that's why bodies are really important, not only for the monster, but for all of them, for all of the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, because we've talked before on this podcast about like being a brain in a jar and that would be so unsatisfying to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think it would be. I mean, so much of what we do or what we think about has to do with our bodies if we, if we don't realize it necessarily. And there's so much fun to be had with bodies too. <laughs> In many ways. <laughs> so much fun and also a lot of pain. A lot <laughs> kind of pain of to take too. <laughs> but um, yeah, but I think life would be boring without all of that, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of questions. And if there's parts that, you know, you don't want us to spoil yeah, of the we, book or anything. And- if we ask you a question about the book and you like don't want the audience to know the answer, you can right. tell us and we'll take it out. And we're okay. going to do a prolonged beep it out like you just said a string of curse words. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I love that. I'll let you know, definitely. Oh my God, Gerardo, why would you say that? <laughs> <laughs> just cancel me immediately before I come out into the world. Oh no. You know, okay, <laughs> I am not super involved in like book Twitter, but I peek in every now and then. I have some friends who are like publishers or just, you know, really love to read and uh, that sort of thing. So I will see some book drama or like book discourse or whatever occasionally. And I'm wondering lately, so I feel like to some extent we, it's kind of complicated to put this into words, but some people think that we are having a moral panic right now in terms of like Gen Z and like sexuality or like, you know, quote unquote problematic books. And um, I've seen a lot of writers say like, you know, I'm trying to talk about this topic maybe as a metaphor or like I have a character who's not a good person and, you know, I have some reviews where people are trying to cancel the book or whatever. So you have a character that I don't know if you can even call him a cannibal because a cannibal's a human that eats humans. And I don't know that he's a human, but he's definitively proven not to be at one (laughs) point with science, (laughs) which I want to talk about that, too. Well, how much of being a human is scientific and how much is like metaphysical? So I don't know if I would trust non-human DNA doesn't necessarily mean not human in my heart. But (laughs) is that something you were concerned about at all or you just don't care? You think the people like the discourse is overblown or like what's your opinion? Were you a little worried? I mean, I, I definitely thought about it. I mean, it's hard not to think about. It, it is a difficult topic because I think sometimes people may be right about certain <laughs> things. That's a hot take. <laughs> or like at least bringing up certain issues. But I don't think art necessarily has to be moral, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You're writing characters and the characters may or may not take the best decisions. And that's also Mm -hmm. related to your values and to your own morality. Mm -hmm. But the character has their own vision and maybe they regret what they do or maybe they don't. Or, But that's the character, right? It doesn't make Mm -hmm. the book like wrong or not. 
in my opinion. Right. And there is, I think, I mean, there is definitely like some sort of panic going on in the sense that I see that a lot of people are banning books, like in Florida and other places. And mm -hmm. that's horrible, um, especially because the books that are banned are by marginalized communities, mm -hmm. um, usually, or like black authors or like mm -hmm. queer authors. And so that seems to me like horrible and regressive. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's another panic that kind of like overlaps, which to me is kind of like weird because there's like this like real conservatism to that, mm -hmm. you know, to that banning. But there's also like some sort of discourse where people that are supposed to be like really progressive, blah, 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 but they don't want to like see sex or, like, mm -hmm. you know, like read mm -hmm. about sex or watch sex in movies or whatever, because they feel like it's gratuitous or whatever. But I mean, if you say sex is gratuitous, then everything is gratuitous. Why are they eating? Why are they breathing? You know, like right. <laughs> sex is part of life. And so that part I'm not super comfortable with, like just restricting specific mm -hmm. areas of humanity or like being a person. Yeah, I just think that there's so much to human experience that there's nothing wrong with with seeing those things in art. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're you're allowed to not want to watch certain things or whatever. Everybody makes those decisions, but that doesn't mean that that piece itself is, is wrong, wrong or should be banned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's all kinds, right? It's not like sex scenes have to be a certain way in order to be acceptable, but right. I mean this like the sex that is in your book, it's not I wouldn't call it gratuitous at all. Like it's just kind of a part of life. It's, you know, right. like you said, it's just another way of connecting with someone or maybe not connecting with someone, but connecting with your own body. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with you though. I think the problem with the books being banned, um, you know, by marginalized authors. Books by marginalized authors being banned, not yeah. books being banned by marginalized authors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was another great example of how I can't talk sometimes. I was just saying, you know, well, the problem with all that is if they would just stop writing such, you know, difficult things about racism and about, right. you know, homophobia, yeah. like, you know, their books wouldn't be banned. So maybe if everybody could just kind of like whitewash it a little bit, it'd be a lot better for everybody. Yeah. I feel like the difficulty a lot of authors have right now is that, you know, you have it's two sides to the same coin. Obviously, one side is much worse. One side is an institution literally banning books because it's challenging to the status quo. And then on the other side, I think, you know, the mantra, like, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism has kind of... It makes everything impossible. Which, you know, it, it's accurate to an extent, but it's primed people to think of their consumption as it, it must be, like, ethicized, ethicalized. I don't know the word. But, right. like, because of that, you know, you can't just like something or not like something. If you like something, it has to be <laughs> ethical. If you don't like something, it has to be, you know, morally wrong. Right. And sometimes things are morally wrong, but a lot of times you just don't like it. Like, okay, it's not to your taste. Yeah, which Move is on. different. It doesn't have to be this is bad and it's bad for everyone and I want to get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it is complicated to separate those things. And sometimes I think we live in this binary where it's like, this has to be wrong or this has to be right. Or, it, you know, or for example, you read the classics and in mm -hmm. many, there's a lot of racism. <laughs> 
But that doesn't mean <laughs> that you can't appreciate other things of the book. I mean, you can actually like discuss things and say, well, this part is racist, but this part mm -hmm. is also teaching me something that I didn't know about myself or about writing or about the world or about whatever. So it's mm -hmm. hard to live in that grayer area, mm -hmm. um, especially in, in a discourse that it's like either you're good or you're evil um, mm -hmm. and there's kind of no in between. And so I would love to just have those discussions be a little bit more nuanced. Um, mm -hmm. And there are obviously like people that are having like really amazing nuanced discussions. It's just not yeah. um, conducive like in Twitter or stuff like that. <laughs> Twitter's know? not um, great for nuance. Yeah, yeah exactly. And when you were saying, you know, you're interested in how people keep like, you know, physical mementos of of people after their deaths. Monstrelio has been compared to um, Frankenstein, right? Like a modern day Frankenstein. You've got a being being born out of something that used to be a human, part of a human or parts of humans. But I also saw a lot of comparisons kind of with Wuthering Heights, like this idea of like not being able to let a person who has died go. Right. And, you know, Heathcliff digging up Kathy's body at different points and wanting to cuddle with it. And right. um, I mean, there's just a lot of similarities there. I wondered when we're talking about the humanness or non-humanness of Monstralia, right? He grows out of a piece of lung. He eventually becomes basically boy shaped. But my favorite part of the book is when he's like, He's a, a fuzzy little ball and he just has a kind of a tail with a claw on it. And there's a, I oh my gosh, there's a, such a cute picture of him in the back of the book. I was like, this yeah. guy should be on the cover. He is the star. Yeah. He's got it. And yeah. I would love to post, I'm if it's okay with you, we're going to put that picture of him on our Instagram because yeah. he has just got a certain charm to him. I assume you drew that? I drew that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So before I even saw that, because it's on the last page, like I didn't even see that little thing, but that's exactly how I pictured it. Like you, you know, that's exactly how it's described. And I agree with Rachel. I loved that thing so much. I cared about him. <laughs> I never <laughs> wanted to cry when the original boy died. I didn't necessarily want to cry near the end of the the book but when it was that little monster and he was in trouble I was on the verge of tears a lot of the time like I love that thing yeah and so like I said the characters are kind of talking about like originally the mom Magos um she refers to the thing as lung she'll say come here lung come here little lung like oh yeah. no it's the lung then she starts calling it the monster then she calls it monstrilio then it becomes M then it becomes well, MA she calls him the name of her dead son before right, she, sorry Santiago then it's, he goes from monstrilio to Sebastian no, Santiago. That's what it yeah. is. I'm sorry. I don't know yeah. why I'm thinking I was that. like, does your book have a... <laughs> it's because we're reading Twelfth Night. <laughs> oh. Sebastian. <laughs> I combined them. <laughs> I was like, huh, interesting. Um, but anyway, there's different points at which they're discussing, like, is this Santiago? Is it not Santiago? Like, you understand this isn't really Santiago, right? It's something different. And she's like, yeah, 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 I understand that. But really, does she? So I'm curious, is there, in your mind... A correct answer to whether he is human. Is there any such thing as being human or is it possible to be a little of human and a little of not? Because in my mind, I gave him a lot of humanity and I thought he should be treated as a person and I thought he should be treated as well as a person. But I also 
fundamentally thought of him as an animal. Maybe because I was so attached to that little monster character, Monstrilio, right. I, I loved him so much and I thought of that as his core being. Like, that's who yeah. he wanted to be. You know, they there's this part where they cut off his little arm tail and then he becomes something totally different and it seemed like maybe that was what he was meant to be. So in my mind, every time he did something bad, like eat a person, I thought, I'm not mad at him for that. Like, he's <laughs> that's what he's supposed to do. Like, you know. Right. And I think that's how a lot of the characters, like his family, reacts to him. Like his dad clearly wants him not to eat people, but everybody else is like, yeah, it'd be nice if you didn't eat people, but like I can't really blame you. You're you're not a person. Right, so exactly. So that was a really long multi-part question. But I mean, what are your – is there a correct answer in your mind or are we supposed to form our own opinions? Well, I would hope like everybody like makes their own opinion. For me, it's very similar to how you read it just because I'm also in love with that little creature. Um, and every time I think of M or like Monstrilio, there's always that furry little creature inside or like Mm -hmm. as a soul Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. But it's also, I was interested in not giving like a clear answer because I'm also interested in thinking of ourselves as like what intrinsically defines us. And that's super hard (laughs) to know, right? It's like, who are we Or, or like, who makes me me? Or what makes me me? Mm-hmm. We are all like also instinct and desire and all of these things. And we try to mold that in a way that kind of like fits into the idea we have of ourselves, right? So we may think we're more enlightened and maybe we don't, we try to calm ourselves down or like talk easier or not like scream at people or whatever. But that doesn't mean that that instinct or that <laughs> desire or whatever is not in us. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in that and how we mold ourselves and present ourselves to the world and what part of that is an idea that we have of ourselves that is intrinsically of ourselves or we kind of want to be part of society and so we have to conform to certain norms and so all of that kind of like is reflected in that character of Montreal because I think he never fully feels human Mm-hmm. I think he's trying to, but I, I don't think he ever feels that he's part of humanity as like a full 100% human. He's kind of conflicted, right? Because his mm-hmm. family or uh, especially Joseph is trying to make him into a human. And I don't think Joseph is doing it for malicious reasons. He he really mm-hmm. just wants him to be happy and to be accepted. It, it's funny that we would phrase it at all as like, oh, you know, I don't think he's being malicious because Joseph is literally the only one who's like, son, you cannot kill people, (laughs) (laughs) which like arguably is the best position. (laughs) (laughs) But we're like, oh, he's not that bad. (laughs) I mean, the other ones don't want him to do it either. I feel like, yeah, there may be more understanding and but is that understanding or is that maybe degrading to his humanity if there is humanity? So, um, I mean, there's also this interesting intersection, right, with like this queer coming of age part of it. And obviously there's a lot of similarities and comparisons that can be drawn between, you know, someone who feels like they're not accepted, feels like a monster, feels like they're different and wrong and like they wish they could just be the same as everybody else. And like there's comparisons between, you know, being queer as a young person and how Monstrilio feels as a monster. And he also happens to be queer and everyone in the book is queer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To an extent. I wonder. (laughs) Yeah, to an extent. And so um, I wonder, you know, where in your mind do those two things intersect and where do they separate? Because obviously, like you said, Monstrilio has a core of him that is not human. 
are the metaphors of being queer and the metaphor of being a monster, are they exactly overlapping or do you see kind of where I'm where I'm going with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think I understand where you're going. I mean, obviously I don't think we queer people are monsters, but sometimes <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> wink wink. But sometimes we can we can like see ourselves like that just because mm-hmm. society or other people make us feel that way, right? Like mm-hmm. you're not supposed to exist just as you are. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is like that idea of monstrosity that you're not normal, you know, whatever normal is. That Part, like the feeling of being a monster, I think, for me is where also part of the queerness comes out. And the fact that the characters are queer is more because I'm like, why does heterosexuality have to be the norm in every book? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. um, why can't characters mm-hmm. be queer and, not, and, and just live their lives? Yeah. And it was uh, interesting because those things were just like very matter of fact. Like there's really no tension that I picked up on in the book where anyone was like, oh, that, you know, that's weird. Or like, they shouldn't be doing that. Or you right. know, don't you think you might like girls instead, right? The parents, like the older generations in the book never say anything about like, oh, don't do that. You know, I assume they're very Catholic, right? Um, and still, it's just kind of like, yeah, this is we're all we're all comfortable with this. This is just how things naturally are, and it's never a, a source of tension. Yeah, and I think now that you mentioned religion, I think Lucia is kind of like casually Catholic, which is mm-hmm. a lot of people in Mexico are. Which you follow like the rituals, but you're not really like a super mm-hmm. believer or whatever. But you, there are certain rituals that you do, like first communion, or or like if someone dies, you throw a mass. Certain things that almost become more cultural than religious, almost. Um, and Lena is obviously like very angry at religion just because she feels like she's not part of that right like she's wrong somehow in the eyes of of, of God. Yeah. And because she's got an interesting backstory that, you know, I won't, I won't spoil, but I, I think she was my favorite character. Honestly, she was just so interesting. And, um, complex and I was just like I would like a whole spin-off just about Lena. <laughs> <laughs> the book for the audience's edification, the book is divided into four parts and each part is from a different character's perspective. So the mother Magos is part 1, Lena, the mother's best friend, part 2. Part three is Joseph, the father, and then part four is from the perspective of M or Monstrelio as he once was. Yeah, no, I, there's so much more to it than what we've gone over. I, I really recommend it if you're interested in any of these topics, honestly. Um, if you can handle some uh, quite a lot of gore in one section and if you can handle like grief over a dead child, because those are two very large parts of the book that I know a lot of people would have trouble with. So if you can't handle that, maybe buy it for a friend. Don't read it yourself. Sorry. (laughs) Well, and hopefully that would have been made clear by now that there's eating people and death. Um, People, movies, books, whatever, they can have light cannibalism. I would call this like quite heavy cannibalism. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, Gerardo, this is just kind of curiosity question for me, but I I hate this about myself, honestly, but um, I do listen Mm -hmm. to a lot of true crime podcasts just because like that's for whatever reason, that's what I'm drawn to when I'm like cleaning or something. So I've listened to a lot of horrible things that I'm almost kind of desensitized to it. But there are stories about people who have requested to be eaten by other people. And there's a part of your book that deals with an idea like this. Were you aware of that before? Were you drawing off of things like that? (laughs) Yeah, I had heard of that. (laughs) Um, I think there's, yeah, there's an idea of like wanting to be eaten 
as almost like an ultimate act of intimacy. Like, yeah, wanting to be part of another person. Yeah, exactly. Um, Which is very interesting to me as an idea. That idea of like, in sex, like people would say like, we're one body right now or something cheesy (laughs) like that or whatever. But like, this is like taking that idea into next level. I mean, I, I just read this short story that is just that Mariana Enriquez, she's an Argentinian mm-hmm. author, um, and she has this short story where, like, these two teenage girls who are fans of the of this real popular like singer, he dies, but they go to his grave and they unearth him and they eat him. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, it's mm-hmm. like also that idea of like being yeah. the ultimate fan that you eat him. Yeah, there was another Reddit thing I saw where someone requested after they died like I think that someone was going through an illness they knew they were going to die and they requested their significant other to eat a little bit of their ashes every day so she would like pour a little bit of the ash into like a smoothie or something that's actually that's a comic book called 12 days oh, that I've book. mentioned before but I think it oh, burrowed right. into your psyche I think it did because you oh, said that wow. you you said that you asked if Steven <laughs> would eat a little bit of you every day and he said absolutely not and you said come on just a little bit no 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 <laughs> I didn't ask if he would. Like, I didn't say, like, will you do it? I just mean... Like, hypothetically, would you? If I wanted you to, would you? And he was like, I don't think so. But anyway, yeah, it's... So what I was gonna... I was gonna bring that comic up. So it is called 12 Days, and the author is June Kim. And I read it when I was in high school. And I recently found it in a used bookstore, like, a month ago. So I was like, I'm buying this. (laughs) And leaving it under Stephen's pillow for him to find. (laughs) Yeah. I just remember being very – I don't know how to explain it. I was just very taken by the the way that – so that's also about dealing with grief. The main character has the ashes, and over the course of 12 days, she consumes all of them, like, mixing them to a milkshake or – Yeah. Yeah, I haven't reread it yet, but I just had that idea in my mind for like 15 years and I was amazed to see it again because I had almost thought I made it up. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Of course. Works about grief and eating people are going to remind me of other ones. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely did burrow its way into my psyche because I thought of this as like a relationship thing on Reddit. It turns out it was a real life relationship thing with Rachel and her fiance. No, it it was a comic book that I read. Yes, but like the (laughs) fact that like you asked him to do it and he was like, no, I would never do that. And you were like, come on. But I I know you didn't actually want it to happen. It was just hypothetical. I I wouldn't care. At this point, if he wanted to, fine. But I don't have a preference. I don't have a preference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's, you know, every, I, I was not going to say everybody. Like, this isn't like a universal thing, but obviously. Oh, gosh, obviously, what are you going to say no, I'm just about saying, yourself? No, about like what we're all talking about. Like, obviously, this has come up from multiple different people and multiple psyches across multiple cultures. But I just kind of wanted to generally ask, I mean, when you set out to write this, did you always plan to write? I don't know if you would characterize this as a horror novel or if it's, you know, horror and a love story or both, but have you been drawn to horror as a genre? Do you think you'll write more stuff like that in the future or would you characterize it as something different? Yeah, I mean, I do love horror. I I, I think horror allows for a lot of viscerality and like embodied things. I love mm. monsters. I've always been fascinated with monsters. It's fascinating just to think about monsters and what how we define what a monster is and what they do. 
as a writer, realism or like straight up realism is not for me. <laughs> um, I love a little bit of like weirdness and and I think a lot of writers, especially coming from traditionally marginalized communities, are writing in genre. Mm. A lot of horror, but there's also like mystery and like fantasy and sci-fi and all of that. I think it allows for the imagination to prosper. And I think queer people or um, marginalized communities, we need a lot of imagination mm -hmm. to imagine yourselves in a better place and to imagine ourselves loved and accepted. And so I think it, it ties into like that idea that we really need to exercise our imaginations to mm -hmm. to understand our place in the world. Would you consider this so in terms of genre is it almost like horror realism? <laughs> like magical realism but <laughs> you know with a little cannibal boy. <laughs> right. Cuz I had asked Rachel before this conversation like oh do we consider this magical realism and then I thought to myself am I being prejudiced by asking that is like just because it's you know a story by a Mexican author and does that automatically right and you know Rachel was saying like you know magical realism is a fundamentally Mexican genre or, no or Latin not, American Latin American not, yeah. yeah so what do you think about that I mean do you feel comfortable with it being characterized that way um or like Rachel said horror realism could be its own <laughs> kind of genre I like that idea of horror realism <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I don't mind magical realism at all or that label um because i mean i grew up reading magical mm -hmm. realism and i love it and i think that's a big influence for me yeah I, I think it's different in the sense that a lot of times magical realism may not be as horrific necessarily but it, it definitely mm -hmm. is in that realm and i think like once you write it you kind of have to let go a little bit because it's nerve-wracking to just have a book yeah. out in the world something that you spent years on um, <laughs> But now it's not yours anymore. You did what you did, and now it's like what whatever people make of it. Obviously, I'm not super interested in hearing horrible things about the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, it's whatever people want to make of it. I, I can't dictate mm -hmm. how people re will react. Um, I just hope people like it and... You know. It's a good way to be. I think it could be nice if we do like a little later on, like a little bit of a character gossip yeah. section. So then if anyone's like, I don't want to get into the specifics, maybe we can they we can just be like, okay, skip the next five minutes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I, just to kind of, yeah, thinking about you. So I was <laughs> reading, you um, had done a residency at Breadloaf, right? And, yeah. and that's, a, I believe, a 10-day program. I've known some people who have gone there because I'm used to be or try to be a poet. And so oh, nice. it's, it's, I try, <laughs> but I have a day job. So, um, <laughs> is that, um, a place where you were able to like write a huge portion of the book? I mean, over 10 days, I know you said you worked on it for years, but you know, where, where did a lot of your actual writing time come from? Well, I think most, I mean, I started the book in during my MFA. So that gave me a lot of time because it was, a fully funded MFA, or at least when I was there it was. So it was three years of writing time, mm -hmm. which is amazing. At Bratloaf, it was more of like a workshop type situation for 10 days. 
And I actually didn't workshop my novel then because it's really hard to workshop a novel <laughs> in such a short amount of time. And like, yeah. so I was just working on a short story then. But the people that I met at Brello were amazing and they there's amazing readers and friends um, and I love them. So yeah, I mean, that experience was amazing just to be in that community. Um, and then I finished my MFA right as the pandemic hit. And so I was like, oh, the world God. was like, want some more writing time? Because <laughs> nothing else is happening. Yeah, exactly. Because I couldn't really do anything. And so I was just writing, you know, I had to, I, I moved in back with my parents because I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> and I wrote a lot. I mean, I finished my novel during that time. It, it is isolating in a way, but also it gave me the opportunity to just write and finish which was, in that sense, it was a blessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was inhabiting the headspace of characters in this book difficult for you personally at all? I mean, I can imagine living these characters and writing them. I mean, you write about grief very convincingly. I imagine that, you know, we've all lost people, right? But was it was it hard for you to have all of this in your head? Because it is a lot of difficult topics, <laughs> especially while being isolated with COVID. <laughs> yeah, so there were parts that were definitely harder to write than others. The Magos part, which is, I think, the most grief-heavy, that I wrote first. So that that one was pretty much done before the pandemic hit. Good. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And so I was lucky not to have to revisit that part a lot or like inhabit that headspace. <gasps> also because um, I love Magos, but I think she's also, yeah. you know, she has a lot of feelings and sometimes complicated feelings and not maybe the happiest ones. Or the best uh, coping strategies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the part with M, I had a lot of trouble inhabiting and just because maybe there's a part of me that feels like M in a way. So it was mm -hmm. just kind of hard to find mm -hmm. that like sweet spot where I could like find what his voice was. Maybe I was just like kind of like reticent to be more vulnerable or something. Um, but yeah, that was kind mm -hmm. of like one of the harder parts to write. Yeah. Um, I found like when I was reading the M part, I was noticing parallels also with like neuroatypicality, just some of the ways that, you know, he speaks, the way he interacts with other people, other people kind of try to help him act more human. Right. Um, is that something that you intended to be part of him as well? Or was that kind of more just a feature of like part monster, part human? I think both. I mean, I did have an intention for him to be atypical, obviously. In a way, he's new to his feelings and he doesn't really knew, know how to handle all of them. He knows how to handle certain things like his hunger. He understands that a little bit better than most anybody would, I think. But there are other <laughs> things that he doesn't. He just He's just kind of clueless about. Yeah. And the book was originally written in English, right? Yes. I assume because you're doing it as part of your MFA in America, you've got to share it with, with people exactly. who read English. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so there, there are parts of it where it's like, oh, this person, this character switched to English. And I was like, oh, I forgot they're speaking Spanish the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah. yeah, I think that the language part was also like, sometimes I forgot to like, because in my mind, those two languages kind of combine sometimes, mm -hmm. but I also mm -hmm. didn't want it to be distracting. So it doesn't matter if if you forget that they're speaking Spanish or whatever. You didn't want to have it switch back and forth constantly and have to like translate. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I was curious, a lot of the book takes place in Mexico City and that is where you're from per yeah. your bio. But, you know, you said 
you did your MFA in the U.S. and you're writing workshops in the U.S. The book is being published by an American publishing company and in English. And I was just wondering, like, would you like to talk a little bit about how did you get from there to doing this here? Yeah. Well, that's um, – I've always liked the U.S. I was born in Mexico <laughs> and I lived here most of my young life, I guess you could say. Mm. When I was 11, my family moved to Olympia, Washington for a year. Mm. And I loved that year. I was in fourth grade and it was just amazing. It just felt like another world. And I, I think I like that stayed with me. When it was time to go to college, I applied for colleges in the U.S. And I actually ended up going to Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York um, to study film, mm -hmm. actually, uh, film and photography. Oh. And so I did that because um, I wanted to be a filmmaker at the time, but then found out later that um, even though I do love film, um, it's super collaborative. And I don't know if I have that personality <laughs> in me. <laughs> um, I mean, I respect people that can really like communicate their vision to a team of people. And that is just amazing. But I don't think that's, <laughs> that's how I work creatively. And then I lived in several places in New York and in Berlin. I went to Berlin because I wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I had a wonderful time in Berlin, but I, I couldn't stay there for long. And then I came back to Mexico City. And I worked in advertising, in digital advertising for like 10 years. <laughs> and then I was like, well, no, but I'm an artist. So I need to do something with my life. <laughs> uh, and I was like, well, I love writing. Um, I'm going to apply for MFAs in the US because I had that idea from college, from like undergrad. Like if you wanted to be an artist, like one path would be like, to get like I got a BFA and then so like one path would be to get an MFA so I applied to programs that were funded and I was like well if I get into a program then I'll do it it means that what I should do with my life or something mystical like that yeah. <laughs> and then I got in into the the University of Michigan which was great and so yeah that's how it all came. I mean, it was just kind of like a series of circumstances yeah. that, that led me to it. I mean, I think that's the most relatable. I mean, pretty much most people just make it through their lives by a set of circumstances rather than like planning yeah. and meticulous, um, you know, scheduling. I'm really interested in people's biographies and the ages they are at which they do things, partially because of some inner anxiety that I have about like, what should I have done by a certain age or whatever. Right. So. I wonder if, if it's okay to ask, um, I mean, age is just part of being a human, just like, you know, sex and yeah. having lungs are. So hopefully this isn't an intrusive question, but no. I mean, how, how old were you when you were doing all those things? How old are you now? Because you said like a lot of your young life and I'm like, you're still really young. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you look young over the Zoom call. It's not like, yeah, you well, look young. I'm going to pretend I'm 28. No, I'm actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm 41. I'll be 42 in April. Wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> Yeah, and so I went to my MFA in, in 2017, so I was 46 then, I mean 36 then. I was like, whoa, Benjamin <laughs> yeah. Button over here. <laughs> I'm just going backwards here. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, I was 36 then. I was one of the oldest people in my cohort, but I didn't feel different. Um, I thought I might, okay. but um, I mean, there's 
there's certainly like a, a feeling at times that it's like, oh my God, like if I had done this 10 years earlier, I wouldn't, you know, mm -hmm. like publishing my first book at 41. Um, but, but at the same time, it's like, well, I've done a lot of stuff with my life, you know, like right. I've lived. And so that helped. I don't know if I would have written this book if I hadn't had this life. Yeah. I've read a lot of books where it's like, oh, this author was so young when they published it. And I'm not going to name names. <laughs> but they're not good. Right. <laughs> I have not read a book where the youth of the author is a selling point where I'm like, that is objectively a good book. I've, it's only been one where I'm like, oh, amazing. Like, oh, she was 16 when she published it. That's pretty young. But I'm never like, what a great book. That's so well written. <laughs> or, or even like, you know, 20, 25. Yeah, yeah, there have been like amazing authors that have written the classic works that are, you know, very well lauded uh, who wrote it that early. Yeah. But it's like, well, I didn't have that much to say at 21. You yeah. know, I hadn't done anything except like go to school. Um, and if anybody had said that to me at the time, I would have been like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I have feelings and thoughts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was wondering that too, because as you know, Rachel and I are almost the exact same age. We're, you know, in our 30s. And yeah. I'm like, huh, you know, is, what is it like to, to go back and do an MFA at, at an older age? And I imagine that there's... Um, I imagine it's a little more forgiving of a community to not that 36 is old, but to go back at 36 and do that rather than to say, like, go to med school at 36. Right. right? I think so. Um, yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's a lot of people writing in at every age. And there are like amazing writers that are super young, but that mm -hmm. just wasn't I don't think I would have been an amazing writer super young. That's just me, right? <laughs> um, or I wasn't. I mean, yeah. for me, it kind of worked. I mean, it was and sometimes still is nerve wracking because I did have like a nine to five job that I was doing well at, <laughs> you know, like I, I was yeah. earning a good living. I was I mean, I was doing well, but it was just not the life that I wanted to live. So I'm mm. I'm much poorer now, but I'm happier. Yeah. Every time we do these author interviews, I'm secretly, I feel like a little vampire or a leech. I'm just like, yes, like give me <laughs> confidence. Give me ideas for becoming a writer later on or something like that. So <laughs> I appreciate you talking about that. <laughs> it's never too late. And yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm lucky I have a support system that allowed me to, you know, like embark in this adventure. So I do feel privileged mm -hmm about that. And I understand that not everybody can do it, um, but I could, and I'm very grateful for that. Hey everyone, I hope you are enjoying our interview with Gerardo Samano Cordova and that you're looking forward to buying his book Monstrulio, which I believe came out a week ago by the time this episode buy will it, air. Buy it, buy it, so buy it, buy it, buy it. Yeah. I'm trying some subliminal messaging. Buy it, buy it, buy it. It's very cute. The cover's awesome. The little monster sketch in the back, worth the price of admission alone. Please buy if it. you I don't know what Jackie's whispering, and I'm not gonna worry about it. If you <laughs> like what you hear if you'd like to support us then please send this episode to friends and family give us a rating review on apple podcasts or spotify but also if you really want to help us out you should go to patreon.com slash fire the canon and consider becoming a patron of ours for only a few dollars a month and i mean you could do more than that if you want but a few dollars <laughs> is also great 
If you do, you'll have access to all of our bonus content that we've ever that made. We've ever made. So, and if, um, you know, at certain other levels, there's other perks, you can get a really cool looking sticker and as well as some other things. We also have some exclusive posts on our Patreon other than um, episodes. So yeah, we hope you will um, decide to support us if you can. And if not, thank you so much just for listening to this episode. If you're listening for the first time as a new fan, welcome. We're super happy to have you here. All right, yeah. back to the episode. Let's talk about Frankenstein, which is a book by a very young writer. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, she was, is it 16, I think? Oh, wow. No way, really? Really? I, well, let me Google it, but I think Because she so. was already married to Percy by then. We're on a first name basis. So. She Okay, 19 is when she finished, but I believe like when she wrote the short story, she was even younger than that. Huh. Anyway, she was quite young. She was a teen. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, un- it's unfortunate, Jackie, but a lot of famous people married quite young girls. Yeah. So. No, I mean, I get that. I know that. But I, 16 was would be a little crazy. Yeah. 16. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It says it says she finished writing it when she was 19. Okay. So I, I don't know. Maybe, mm-hmm. she, maybe she wrote it when she was 19 and I'm just getting six and nine confused <laughs> because they, they flip around to mm-hmm. become each other. <laughs> But still, 19 is super young. Yeah, yeah, right. She's, it was quite young. It was, like, surprising how young she was. But um, when we were first discussing this conversation, I don't know if you would say it's inspired by Frankenstein or, you you know, you thought about it a little bit. Like, Frankenstein has permeated our culture yeah. so much. Like, what's... We haven't covered that as a book on the podcast yet. I think we're going to do that for Halloween this year, nice. though, mm-hmm. when we'll like really go in depth into the book and the background, and you'll find out exactly how old Mary Shelley was when she wrote <laughs> it. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, like what's your what's your experience with it? How did that kind of inspire this book if it did at all? Or is the Frankenstein parallel kind of like? I don't want to say just an advertising thing, but it definitely makes, I think it opens up more people, especially in like American and Western audiences. Like, oh, it's a modern day Frankenstein. Like that gives me a a place to start in terms of how I can think about, do I want to read this or not? Yeah. So is that Mm -hmm. something that came from marketing or more from you or both? I think both and more from early readers, actually. Early readers were like the ones that were like, oh, this is kind of like Frankenstein. And so... And that absolutely makes sense. I haven't read Frankenstein in a long while since I was like a teenager, probably. Yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I read it recently just because also all these conversations were happening. And it's such an interesting book. I love so many parts of it. So Frankenstein, like actual Victor Frankenstein, he's kind of like... I don't know. He's kind of like an asshole. I don't know if I can say asshole, but. (laughs) (laughs) You can. We curse a lot on this podcast. (laughs) He kind of just like, he he wants to create this living creature. And then the instant, like the creature comes alive, he's like, nope, nope, this is wrong. (laughs) He's horrible. Like, nope. I'm just gonna like run away and like yeah. be depressed for like three months or something like that, um, and and just not take care of what I did. Yeah, he is Percy Bysshe Shelley. He was just creating humans all over the place and then being like, yeah, I don't need to take care of that thing. Yeah, I, I'll just go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's like this real weird moralistic view with Frankenstein where he's just like, um, well, he looks horrible, so he must be horrible. And there's like a lot of notes like that that are some of them are like quite racist in the book, like. 
noting people's skin color and being like, oh, they're good because they're really white or they're bad because they're kind of darker yeah. or like things like that. And I think that is reflected on Frankenstein himself, the character, how like he just sees he's ugly, it's a monster. And so he's just like, nope, bad, you know, bye. But then like the very interesting mm-hmm. part is that a lot of the book is devoted to the monster and his story and how like lovely he is and how he just wants to you know, mm-hmm. learn to be human. And he just wants to be loved, really. Um, and it's such a beautiful mm-hmm. part of the book. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting to me to have like that juxtaposition of things and how like the monster is allowed his perspective. And it's a very beautiful, tender perspective. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't understand. I mean, he understands that he he's kind of ugly, but he's like, well, but if I like learn to speak the language mm-hmm. and I can talk to people, they might see that I'm not bad, that I'm like actually like a nice, generous being. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that is super yeah. interesting to me. And it's obviously like in Monstrelia as well, you know, in my book. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like there's even something universal about that. Cause like, I mean, obviously I'm not like a, a stitched together bunch of body parts. Um, I just want to make that really clear, like, in case anybody was <laughs> suspecting it. I I know you probably are thinking I might be now that I've said that, but I promise I'm not. So obviously I can't empathize with that part of Frankenstein, but I think everybody has a little thing in them if they're honest with themselves about, like, I'm not the best person in the world and, like, I try to be good, but, like, yeah. I'm not good all the time. And, like, mm-hmm. I feel bad about the parts of myself that aren't good. Right. You know, we have to try to synth- synthesize those parts um, but also tamp down the bad parts at the same time. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough to be a human. Yeah, it is tough. This book, I mean, it's written, like, in 1818 mm-hmm. or something yeah, like that. Uh, yeah, something around there. <laughs> I can't imagine, like, reading this book at that time. I don't know, like, I, I mean, I don't know if, like, people were, like, angry about it or like super interested um <laughs> people were pissed off about Wuthering Heights I know that yeah <laughs> I think people when it was published people were like oh she didn't write it like they're just saying she did but it was definitely yeah. Shelley which implies mm. that they thought it was pretty good yeah exactly well it is I mean like and I also haven't read this since I was in high school as a teenager but I think if I had known at that time that someone my age wrote it I would have been way more interested in it and I would have paid a lot more attention to just the complexity of the language, which obviously we'll talk about when we talk about Frankenstein. But I also, maybe they intentionally don't tell high schoolers <laughs> that a teenager wrote it because it would make them feel bad about themselves. Yeah. I mean, maybe. And I also wonder if the way you were taught English was different, <laughs> you know, like how to yeah. write or how to like express yourself. It's just different uh, or how you even talk, maybe. I don't know. I don't know that I was taught how to write or express <laughs> myself. I don't think a lot of people are, honestly. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> I true. I think I just read books and then I just copied what I read. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Or you're taught grammar, but in like a very standard, mm-hmm. basic way, but not, yeah. you know. I think you had talked earlier about, you know, this book It's horror, but it's also sort of a fantasy about, like, radical (laughs) acceptance from your family. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And with Frankenstein, you have this, like, single college student 
man who makes a monster and immediately is like, oh, fuck no. And then (laughs) in Monstrilio, you have a woman in her 30s who is a mother who creates a monster that, like, it immediately wants to kill. And she's like, this is my baby. (laughs) Like, nobody can do anything to this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a function of of maternal love or parental more so? I I think so. And I think it's a it's that idea of like wanting to not reject any everything right away. I, I kind of wanted to explore that, you know, and not be like not just be instantly terrified by something that's new or weird looking. Yeah, that would be boring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to explore that and kind of like give that perspective. What ha- what would happen if they actually did love the monster, mm-hmm. you know? It's hard not to love that thing. I want that thing. Oh my gosh. Like if this book makes it like really, really big and I hope they start making little plushes of oh, Monstrelio, yeah, would I would buy amazing. one 100% and I would hang it in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. I would love that. So you, you mentioned that you like to doodle little things. Yeah. Like did you doodle this monster before you wrote the book? No, I I doodle this monster after. Mm-hmm. I wish our erstwhile producer Theo was here because he um he's a he's been a part of a lot of our podcasting recently, kind of stepped back a lot, right. but he like he liked to draw crazy little monsters all the oh, time. Oh nice. And yeah, so I was just like, yeah, he would love it. You snooze, you lose, Theo. I'm <laughs> sure he's listening. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Theo. But, so when I was reading the book, like, up until you see that he's, like, Monstrelio's like a, like a fuzzy sphere with a tail, right. I was freaked out. I was like, oh, no, something bad's going to happen. This is terrible. Like, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. And then I see him not visually but in my mind okay mm-hmm. he's like a like a basketball that can squish and it's like nice to hug and he's everything. got like beady little eyes and i was like okay yeah. i'm not scared anymore <laughs> i'm into this and even his and i mean he's described like he's got rows of fangs and when he opens his mouth it splits his whole little sphere body in half yeah. but it, i even thought that was cute i'm just like oh <laughs> yeah. so um i mean why did he look like that like why did you choose that because then there's other parts where um they do get into like at one part they put him in an mri machine and look at his insides and figure out like what the heck is he made of and i'm surprised that you <laughs> went there because I think a lot of people will just kind of rely, for better or for worse, on, oh, if you don't really show the monster, it's a little more scary. And maybe yeah. that's why you went that route. Like, okay, let's actually look and see what he is, like, physically. Um, yeah. And a large part of him, it turns out, is just empty. Yeah. He's just goo. Goo. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Why is he like that? <laughs> so, like, for the first part, why you kind of see him and he. Obviously, he's not as scary because I also felt mm-hmm. like I wanted people to relate to the monster in a way to feel for him. So <laughs> that was... We're all goo on the inside. Yeah. Just goo and nothing else. <laughs> yeah. And I think... The, and one day to goo we shall return. Yeah. And I think also the, like the goo part is also like this realization that it's just dark. Like it came from grief, but it's mm-hmm. starting to become something else. Um, and so that goo part is kind of like the grief part in a way. But it's also what makes him. So he starts from grief, but he's not grief. Right. So he becomes something else. He has like a little boy's body inside because he also is becoming a boy. So, but Mm -hmm. those parts are still like related. And I wanted to have like a complicated body in a way. Yeah, that's complicated. (laughs) Also, it's like, you know, there's, because there's just goo, it's almost like there's infinite potential for what could happen with this guy. If you looked and you 
there was something recognizable, there are only so many directions it can go. But if it's like some unknown mm-hmm. goo, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, he's like he's like ectoplasm. Anything could kind of come out of there. Yeah. And also, it kind of recalled the idea of the homunculus, like the idea of like a little fully formed person inside of another thing, which is yeah. not. I mean, I guess that's it's not a folk tale. It's like that's what people used to think science was, but it's it's kind of like folk magic in a way. Folk science. <laughs> folk science. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, all of that makes. I think so while I was reading the book, I was kind of thinking that there is I don't have any kids yet and I would like to have kids someday. Jackie doesn't have kids and doesn't want to. But I I really want Rachel to have some. Yeah, she wants me to. And I want her to give my kids her money. <laughs> you act like I have tons of right. money. <laughs> I'll buy them presents. Perfect. But so as I'm reading it, I'm just – and something that I've thought about a lot and kind of articulated to friends is there is a, there is a horror to being a parent, to having uh-huh. a child. And I've, I've talked to my friends like I would not – no offense to only children, but I would be too scared to have an only child because – Mm-hmm. Something can happen to that child, or maybe the child is an asshole, <laughs> and then you're screwed. I don't know, Rachel. <laughs> you could just have you could give birth to like three or four or five assholes. Like I don't know why people become psychopaths. You could, but that's why odds I don't are not want to have. good that that would happen. Yeah. So my family, there's four daughters. And, you know, I've always said that I would rather have zero kids than one kid just because of the fear that comes with that. And also, you know, I've known people who have had one kid for several years before having another. And there's a tendency to helicopter, you know, to to watch over that child too much. But like when you're a parent, there's something you have you have to let go at some point. You have to. (laughs) If you don't, if you wait too long you're going to mess yourself up and you're going to mess up the kid don't it's the Bates Motel and so that's something that you see in the book too is the the fright that comes from having a child that's sort of you and mostly not you and then you have to let it make its own choice I thought there's so many parts of horror I thought you were going to talk about like you know as as the person gestating a pregnancy, that thing has to come out of you and like your body will change forever and your mind will change forever and you don't know what it's going to be like when you when you have it. I don't know. Yeah. It's so scary to me. That's why I want yeah. you to do it and not me. Even just the relationship though, like I forget who said this, but I think it was um, – you remember Nicole Cliff from The Toast, Jackie? Oh, yeah. Big fan of Nicole. Yeah. I believe she wrote in one of her newsletters or something about how she spoke with her dad once and he said he had said to her that the real tragedy about being a parent is that when your child is born, you love this kid so much. Like you love this kid and for the rest of that kid's life or the rest of your life, you love the kid the same way, the same amount. But then as yeah. the kid grows up, they don't love you the same way anymore. Like you, the way that you feel about the baby, that's how you're going to keep feeling. But the baby, the way it feels about you is constantly changing. And you just have to sit there with your love that's always the same. And you watch this kid just, (laughs) you know, change. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is kind of terrifying. Um, Do you guys want to talk about um, the character part of this? Or Gerardo, is there anything that we haven't said that you've wanted to talk about? No, I think, yeah, let's just go on with the characters. (laughs) Let's get to the gossip portion. (laughs) Yeah, so this is going to be the gossip portion of of the podcast. So obviously haven't read the book you feel free to listen to this but also if you don't want it spoiled you know just go read the book and then maybe listen to it later yeah 
Okay, let's let's discuss. <laughs> let's get into it. So yeah. I I don't the whole time in the last section I was like Joseph do not marry that man don't do it you don't even want to do it and I kept waiting for him to either be like yeah. you know what yeah I shouldn't marry this guy or for him to say hey I got a monster Let me boy come clean and whatever but he doesn't do anything he's just like I'm gonna keep all my secrets and I'm yeah. gonna get married even though like the way that I feel about this guy is not I just like his <laughs> bod a, it's like I think he's hot and he's nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and it seems like to me and to Rachel because we talked about this beforehand it feels like Joseph and Magos are maybe the only two in the story that are like soulmates maybe Magos and Lena could be soulmates well, too but clearly it, they're Okay. They're they're not working together. The right. thing is like the the relationships that we see, you know, like Lena obviously is like loves Magus, is obsessed with her, but it's not we never see it being a healthy relationship. It might get there someday, or maybe it was off the page, but like we don't see it, which is fine. Right. And then, you know, Joseph and Peter, he just never tells Peter that he has a monster boy. And then He doesn't. But but like when we see Magos and Joseph's memories of their family life, they idealize it. And I don't know how much is just because their son was alive. Or how much is right. like this was awesome. So I, anyway, that's that's my thoughts. <laughs> Fix it. Fix it. I mean, Tell us what to think. And Jackie and I, we talked about this, and I was like, it feels terrible that in a book with all these really cool characters who are like basically all of them are queer, that I'm like rooting for the one straight couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's because of how they remember their relationship. I would also be fine with Jackie and Lucia. Oh yeah, love them. Uh, but we don't actually know if they're together. Yeah. We kind of know they're together. Yeah, they're together un until like Lucia dies. What Magos and Joseph remember of each other is nostalgic to a time where their son was mm -hmm. alive. And so mm -hmm. they're kind of like thinking like, well, that was my best life in a way because mm -hmm. so much pain came after. Right. But I don't think they're mm -hmm. like the best couple, yeah. <laughs> but they certainly love each other. Mm -hmm. And I think with Peter, Peter's a nice guy. He, like Joseph's not like <laughs> super into him. I think Joseph needs Peter's stability. Normalcy? Yeah. Yeah. Like something that is not related to Magos or that family in any way. Um, mm -hmm. And so he, he looked for something external that could like maybe feel like a new start and and that's why I think he doesn't tell him I mean I did struggle with that part mm -hmm. whether he tells him or he, he doesn't but um I think Joseph just needs to have that separate he just like that part needs to yeah. like end for him and Peter cannot be part of it and, and the book doesn't end with Joseph it really doesn't end with any of the characters like having come to peace necessarily or like become whole like they're all still fragmented and like that's okay maybe that's realistic right? yeah I, I think there's a hint that they might be better <laughs> but <laughs> there's a hopefulness there's for a sure. hopefulness yeah. but yeah I mean it's not like they just go off into the sun sunset like all happy yeah. but there's like a path for them to like move mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. at least I definitely agree with that and I see what you mean by saying like this is what Joseph needs or thinks that he needs but I guess I'm just thinking like poor Peter because if if my fiance did that to me I would be mad I would be like are you kidding right. me right. <laughs> yeah these are complicated people yeah which I think is good like we're not 
complaining. That's why I'm trying to call it like a gossip section. No, this you know is what gossip. I mean? Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Steven, if you're listening to this, if you have a monster son, you better tell her right now. <laughs> Seriously. Right now. Because, I mean, so, and feel free if you don't want to answer this or if you want to cut it out or anything. I'm just like, is Peter based on anyone in your life or is he like an amalgamation of just like every boring hot guy that's like... Yeah, yeah, this could be good, but, yeah. you know, am I settling? <laughs> right. Honestly, like, he's not, like, someone I know, but he is kind of, a, like, a, yeah. an amalgamation. But also, like, someone that I, like, would be, like, happy to be with <laughs> in a mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know. <laughs> like, it seems simpler or, you know... um, I don't know, maybe it's just like a fantasy of like who to be with or something. But he just seems loving and accepting. There's a part where Joseph says like, he's too perfect. He's going to break up with me. Yeah, exactly. Because Joseph feels like he's not worthy of that. And that's also part of his remorse because he's not telling him like what his past life is, right? Not like the most important part (laughs) of it, right? There is, like I did actually write if Joseph would tell Peter and it just kind of mm-hmm. didn't work. It just didn't make sense for Joseph or for for the story or for anything. Um so it just kind of like all these characters making like iffy decisions <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> um but right. still kind of like finding a way to understand them. So in your mind, I know you're saying, you know, it didn't work out. And I I totally agree. Like, I don't think it would have been a better... I don't think it would have fit the characters if Joseph had told him. Right. Do you think Peter could have handled it? (laughs) Do you think he would have been like, okay, yes, I'm in on the secret. I'm so happy to be in the club. If I were Peter, I would be like, there is a clear hierarchy in your heart and your ex-wife and your friend are above me and I want to get there. And he definitely wants to, but like Joseph won't let him. Can I guess before the author answers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do, please do. Well, so there's one part where Peter does get mad at Joseph a little bit and is like, look, like I know you're hiding something. And Joseph thinks to himself, oh, he's he's got this tone of voice I never noticed before. He's actually physically stronger than I realized he was too. And that part kind of said to me like, okay, Peter might be able to handle this. Like Peter's got some depth to him. He's not just like a super nice, silly guy right. all the time. So I feel like that's a hint that, yeah, maybe he could handle it. Um, he's clearly like really accepting of the hierarchy, not hard. Maybe he doesn't know how much of a hierarchy it is, but he's very comfortable like having Joseph's ex-wife in the family and uh, he accepts M like very easily. So I don't know. That's what I think. I like that. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also there's this part like when they go to the wedding at the end or like they go back to Ferguson, mm-hmm. which is that house upstate. And like Magos mm-hmm. is like, why is this guy running this house like it was his, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but <laughs> so like Joseph is kind of like bringing Peter into that part of his life, which is that house and that mm-hmm. whole thing, even if he doesn't know exactly what happened there. Um, and so that's like as much <laughs> as Joseph can do at that moment, because that house means a lot 
to both of them, to Joseph and Magos. Mm -hmm. That's where Santiago died. Mm -hmm. I saw that like as a way of a little gesture of Joseph opening up to Peter, even if Peter doesn't realize it or whatever. There's a small part that I thought was kind of amusing where, um, you know, Magos says like, why is he acting like he runs this house or he knows how it works? And Lena says to Magos like, well, you are the one who had the idea to have the wedding here. And Magos is like, well, I'm allowed to be annoyed. Can I be annoyed? And I was like, not really, because you did suggest (laughs) this. And he also has no idea that your kid died here. So like, I'm not sure that your annoyance is super valid right now. But um, there's also like this aspect of sometimes the houses or the physical spaces also have personalities to them. So there's Ferguson, right? There's also um, uh, Lucia's house in Las Lomas, which is this large house, but and it was once grand, but it's kind of falling apart now. And it's like actually literally falling apart towards the end. Um, And then you've got like Lena's apartment where she's like yeah I like this little tiny apartment it's got my life in it it's got my memories so I just didn't know if that was just the way that you tend to write houses or you know does the physicality of those places also is that an important part of the story just like bodies I like to write spaces that reflect Mm -hmm. who the character is or like what is happening Mm -hmm. emotionally around them or you know it just kind of like reflects on like physical things and so those places were important to me too also there were you know how like M navigates that house in Cobble Hill and it's Uncle Luke's house but it's also like old and it's not falling apart but it but it's almost like a museum yeah yeah and like how Ferguson is like it's very old it's got history it's also kind of like an amorphous space where things have happened in the past and we don't know all of what happened there because we weren't alive for it and or we were not there and also there's a lot of potential for what it could be in the future and that that kind of is joseph yeah like very much right yeah yeah i like that yeah absolutely (laughs) i like how you're just like yeah sure that's i like that interpretation (laughs) i I have like one more question about i guess joseph's character and then maybe we can talk about uncle luke but like for the most part i was like joseph very sympathetic i totally get it i feel bad for him he needs a hug etc the part where i was like joseph what are you doing? How did you do that? <laughs> Why? Was after they cut off Monstrilio's tail uh-huh. and he's like depressed and then, you know, something happens. I don't want to say what it is. Doesn't work out. And then Joseph leaves. I'm like, boy, you cannot leave your little monster child with that woman right now. You cannot be leaving him there. Right. And that was the part, like, it doesn't seem unrealistic to me based on you know his mental state but i'm just like i cannot believe he did that yeah. i wanted to like text someone and be like can you believe this but anyway we're talking about it now sometimes joseph needs a hug and sometimes he, he just needs to be shaken <laughs> yeah you need to be like <laughs> you just have to shake him think about why you're doing yeah this, exactly and then think about if you should still do it <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's yeah I, at that point he's come to his limit and also it's a reflection right. of when Magos left him in Ferguson. Um, And so there's that echo of like leaving each other when they can't deal with things anymore. So that's why I think they're not the best couple because they just like leave each (laughs) other and then come back. But but they also understand each other in like a deeper Mm -hmm. way that maybe no one understands, not even them. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was hard. Why would you leave the creature that you love so much Mm -hmm. and you play with and all of that? And I think he... He just can't deal with losing another child because to him, that's his Mm -hmm. second child, right? I've seen in my 
not personally, but family, friends, and so on. Like, I have seen couples who have lost a child, and I've seen some families where they they do try to replace that child with another child, like, firsthand, basically. And it's very, very hard. Like, even when you don't have this you know, a creature grown from a piece of lung. I think, isn't it like basically right. almost all marriages end if if a child dies? It's like something like 80% or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a very high number. It's interesting to me because, so this is kind of what my day job involves, um, is prenatal diagnoses leading then into um, newborn babies with very huge problems and kind of counseling families through that. And I've also been involved sort of with like yeah. what we call perinatal hospice, which is like you've got a, a pregnancy that's expected to either not come to term or after the baby is born expected, the baby is not going to live very long. And so it's just really hard because, yeah, I mean, just like you said, it's people – I think need to be walked through these experiences because they're so totally lost. And also because at least in a lot of parts of American culture, we don't talk about death and we sanitize it and we want to hide it and put it away. And so I end up seeing these moments where people have to kind of find the strength to ask like, what will my baby look like? What will they look like after they die? What will they feel like? You know, will I should I spend time with them? Should I not? And so, you know, maybe we can put a little trigger here for obviously there's a lot of discussion of, of you know, losing a child. And again, I'm fascinated not just artistically, but also intellectually by having to discuss the physicality of that. And I think it's really important. And I think that parents wonder that and anybody who is getting ready to lose someone yeah. wonders that. Um, and it's just like hard to ask those questions. <laughs> and there are so many ways to react. And, you know, if you're just left on your yeah. own in a house without anybody around and wow, just I mean, how do you, how? Parents yeah. have been losing children for as long as we've yeah. had parents and children and we can't, right. we we still can't handle it. There's no, exactly. no one can There's no do way, it right. right. You know, <laughs> there's no right way to mm-hmm. do it. And It's just, it's something so interesting that this is like just, it's such a common intimate tragedy and we still just cannot deal with it. Yeah, no. And I don't have kids and I'm never going to have kids. So I feel like a fraud a lot of times when I'm trying to work people through this. But Hereta, I don't know if you have kids. No, I don't. Yeah. How did you feel when you're writing this parental grief perspective? I mean, it was hard, but I I was thinking of like what my parents would feel or like, or like what my sister would feel. My sister has young daughters and I'll obviously like you tap into what you've lost personally. I haven't lost a child, but loss and kind of like tap into what Mm -hmm. that feels like Mm -hmm. and like that space where like the world seems different, Mm -hmm. you know, like light hits different, everything like smells different. Um, It's just like a shift, you know, and so you kind of like just tap into that. I I really do think that losing a child is just particularly suited to horror Mm -hmm. because that is something where when you, if your parent dies, even if a sibling dies, you're obviously very, very sad, but it doesn't feel wrong. And if your child dies, I've just so many times I've seen people react with like, this 
isn't supposed to happen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. This yeah. goes against nature. It goes against how the world is supposed to work. Like you make, you have yeah. this child and you're sending it into the future and then all of a sudden you're not and you're going into the future mm -hmm. alone. Like that's yeah. wrong. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it kind of mm -hmm. like shifts the world, right? It, mm -hmm. and, and that's how like, I guess in this way, like a monster is born out of that because it just like the world opens up a portal for something mm. completely different to happen because it's not how it's yeah. supposed to be, quote mm -hmm. unquote, you know. And so, yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. literal horror. You know, it just <laughs> it is. Not, and yeah, I'm sure so. I'm, hopefully anybody who's listening who is a fan of horror movies who's seen this particular movie, you're probably at this point thinking of the same thing I am, which is um, Hereditary. Hereto, have you seen that movie? Yes, I love that movie. Okay. God. Okay. One of the most like... I'll be back in one second. Rachel doesn't like horror. Um, she's That's not why she's leaving. <laughs> 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 that's not why she just got up and walked away from the mic. Um, but that has got to be like one of the most amazing and heart-rending portrayals of parental grief. But also yes. it's so interesting with Monstrilio because it starts off with, okay, spoilers for Hereditary, guys. Don't listen to this if you don't want to have it spoiled. The child who dies in Hereditary was sort of a monster already. Like yeah. she was born this kind of half human slash half like uh, supernatural thing. I don't know. What are your, I don't, I guess I don't have yeah. a question. I'm just like, yeah, let's talk about Hereditary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I think well, like the one of the things that really stuck with me for that movie is like when Tony Collette's character, I think she's mm -hmm. called Annie or something, she gives that speech, like she just goes off on her son. Yeah, where he, where she was like, I never wanted. Yeah, you. exactly, yeah. It, and yeah. she's just like, I mean, that part is just one of the more horrific. I mean, the whole yeah. movie is horrific, but that that part is just like goosebumps. You know, it just uh, yeah. it was amazing. Um, that's like the more realistic portrayal of that grief but there's also i mean obviously all the the mm -hmm. actual like supernatural horror that happens which is also <laughs> terrifying but i i preferred that realistic horror to the supernatural stuff honestly i was just like okay like yeah. whatever but yeah i like rachel said it goes against nature like rejection from a mother terrifying yeah <laughs> yeah terrifying yeah. yeah and i i think she's also just like spewing all the things that she has inside you know like all that grief is coming out mm -hmm. and it's like angering um, it's like also in the Babadook. I don't know if you've seen. Yes, the yeah, yeah. That one scared me so bad. I'll never watch that again. <laughs> <laughs> but that mother is also going through grief, not because she lost uh -huh. her husband, but she has a kid, and she just can't handle the kid. You know, like yeah. Why can't you be normal? So yeah, powerful. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of that is coming from like your inner turmoil, right? And so it just, uh, yeah. So all of those are yeah. definitely inspiration. I'd almost forgotten the Baba Duke. I think I, I think I put it out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's also something. Part of it is obviously because of misogyny, but like culture places so much weight on. Uh, love from yeah. mother and like how important it is and I don't know how much of this is like how innately important it is and how much is because we make it so important it is yeah. but I know a lot of people who have like daddy issues and they're fine yeah. but everyone I know who has like mommy issues that is a problem for them right. that is a huge problem yeah yeah I don't know yeah I mean because we talk a lot about like you know it's like an instinctual maternal feeling mm -hmm. or like uh both for the mother and the child. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's like uh, something we invented as society to put pressure on women <laughs> or if it's uh, mm -hmm. something <laughs> inherent 
to our species, but um, yeah, is is maternal love an invention just like stiletto heels are, like just a thing to yeah. make it harder to run away? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because also, I mean, I feel like we've moved away from community in the sense of like, okay, so like your first community is like just your family, like your immediate family, like your parents and maybe mm-hmm. your sibling, but that's it. And mm-hmm. so we've moved away from like that idea of other people can raise you, you know, and that love can also be as strong or as uh, powerful as the person who gave you birth that idea is also very powerful but we've moved away from it so much as a society that it's almost inconceivable that we can like garner love from anybody else yeah and i feel like it's also interesting how it's wrapped up in catholicism because it's like okay you've got mother mary you've got you know mary magdalene you've got all of these like maternal figures and the the huge importance there i don't know man right okay i was gonna ask could you tell us a little bit more about Uncle Luke and kind of like what's up with him? Yeah. So- <laughs> Why is he so cool with Monstrelio just murdering all the time and, <laughs> and like he wants him to? Um, I think uh, for Uncle Luke, he's like also kind of like affected by by grief um, and like by mm-hmm. a lot of things. And I think he sees in Monstrelio someone that's like authentically himself and he just wants him to be free to do whatever he wants. It's not like he's necessarily like murderous. Yeah, like I didn't think he wanted <laughs> him to murder. He gives him a cow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he wants him to murder because that's what he thinks is Monstrelio's exactly. nature. Exactly. <laughs> so I think he just Like wants- he wouldn't want anyone to murder but he wants this guy to yeah murder. exactly i think he just wants him to be satisfied or like happy mm-hmm. and, and he understands deeply mm-hmm. that that's how like m will be happy he that's his idea uh, uncle luke is also like a character who's crooked you know like physically like his arms been weird or like his fingers and like he's bent um, and so he's also mm-hmm. like physically he's different and so he sees that in M and I think Joseph thinks about Uncle Luke and M's relationship. He's like, well, they both have seen their bodies transform and it's an experience mm-hmm. that's unique to them. And so that's kind of why they, they relate to each other. And so mm-hmm. I wanted that type of character mm-hmm. that completely accepts M, even if he just doesn't give much of a shit about anything else, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, he's at the point of his life that he just like, well, let's, you know, he's authentic and he just wants the best for who he loves, you know? Can't wait to get there. Yeah. I guess my last question is, you know, one of the main characters is a murderer, which we've discussed, <laughs> and the way that all of the other characters react to that. And part of it is because this is a book, like literally it's about a monster, but metaphorically it's about a bunch of other things. So they're going to have these, you know, idiosyncratic reactions. So I'm not reading it and thinking like, why are you doing this? Why don't you... We need to go through the American justice system and let the law have its say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I, I do wonder, like, there is like a fantasy to being like, I could do this and I would have a family that would, maybe they don't approve, but they accept me and they help me but also is it is part of it to say like this is you know there's a lot of toxic love and relationships and people hurting the people they love and then letting people they love hurt outsiders and I'm just wondering like for example with with Uncle Luke are you is that something where you're like there are pros and cons yeah absolutely (laughs) I think I, I definitely didn't want to like have the book tell you what you think or have like a moral lesson to it. I didn't want that at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I think the book raises these questions and it's, um, and I think that's as much as the book can do. Um, but it definitely is, mm -hmm. it's raising these questions about mm -hmm. how, how far can love stretch, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of like my first questions in starting to write this book. I, I, I wanted to explore how far could love stretch mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and just kind of like explore what questions arise. Or we all do value some people more than others just because they're close <laughs> to us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, mm -hmm. and that's been like a question for the ages of philosophy and morality and all of mm -hmm. that. Who do you let die, right? Like mm -hmm. someone close to you or like mm -hmm. someone not close to you? Because it's like, mm -hmm. how do you place value in human life? And that's mm -hmm. a super hard question to answer. So it's just like the book explores it and raises mm -hmm. it but it's not necessarily like an answer yeah. to it it's like the the trolley problem with exactly. like on one set of tracks is monstrilio and on the other side of tracks is like everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's it's also something that it's in the news fairly frequently where you say there is an extent to which love and using your love as an excuse to shield someone is admired by culture. And then there's an extent to which people are like, no, you have made yourself a monster for this other yeah. person. When you see parents protecting one child who's done horrible things to their other mm -hmm. children or horrible things to, to like children from right. another family mm -hmm. or parents who maybe their child murdered their partner and they helped them escape and there's always a fine line with people saying they're horrible and people saying well i would do that yeah. too so it, it's just very it's something that as a culture we're very fascinated yeah, by. yeah i think we are for sure there's all kinds of memes that are just like oh you know like you're my best friend like i'll help you bury a body then it's like i don't know if i would help rachel bury a body i guess it but it, <laughs> then i think to myself i would if there was a good reason to. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You have to really sell me on this, but you know, if that person deserved to go and you know what, we're just gonna, yeah. I'll get my shovel. I mean, there's so many questions around this that it's just like, yeah. ah, impossible to just have I, yeah. like a set rule for what you of would course. do or like. Yeah. So I could, I maybe, maybe sometimes I'll bury a body. We can just end it on that. <laughs> Very rarely. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, so it's, for Jackie, there's a limit. You have to have a good you reason. You, I can't just go on a murdering yeah. spree. Yeah, it's not no yeah. questions asked. It is questions asked, for sure. <laughs> yeah, there will be questions. <laughs> oh, man. And so I, there are so, 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 so many things in this book that we've already, like, covered so many in this conversation. And mm -hmm. I'm really interested to just see where you go next. And, like, yeah. you, you honestly could have made, like, maybe four or five novels out of just, like, these concepts alone. So, I mean, I just feel like, yeah, you have a lot in you and a lot to say and I'm interested to see what happens next and I'm also interested to see if in mm -hmm. another book perhaps um, part of the same universe as Monstrilio maybe there's like a creature that lives in the woods and we don't exactly know who that is Ooh. I don't know Monstrilio <laughs> extended universe because he went ah uh, yeah I don't know <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun yeah I mean I'm I'm looking forward to See what I do next too. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm <laughs> requesting that, but I'm also not saying I wouldn't read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like I'm good in terms of questions. Yeah. I feel I feel as satisfied as if I were a little monster boy who just ate a whole guy. <laughs> oh, that's the last thing I wanted to say. This is kind of the the adult human's fault because if they had left him a little monster guy, he couldn't have like probably eaten a whole person before you would even like be able to catch him. They should have just let him stay tiny. Yeah, that's it. That's all right. I had to say. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much, Gerardo. This no, was such a nice you. conversation. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, we, we're so happy to have you on to talk to you. And yeah, and thanks to Sarah for um, bringing you to us because, yeah, we, yeah, I feel like we always luck out when we talk to our guests and we didn't even, we had you picked for us and it was like an amazing conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, mm-hmm. Sarah. Thank you, Rachel, Jackie. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so happy that, because um, when I saw there was a character named after me, of course, um, <laughs> preemptively named after me, I was like, oh, what if I don't like this character? And then I was like, no, I like Jackie. It's fine. Yeah. She's cool. Yeah, she's cool. Yeah, she's, she's the best. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Um, We had a great time. I thought Gerardo was an excellent guest. He was super nice, super fun to talk to. And I think you should support him by buying his book because (laughs) it's a good book and he's a nice guy. You should also support us by telling friends and family about us, giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can send this episode to someone else. And also checking out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fire the cannon. And if you've got a few extra dollars a month, you can send our way. We really appreciate it. And we really need it these days to help us pay (laughs) some British guy to make us sound better. Yeah. We, We don't particularly care which British guy we yeah. I mean any British guy could probably help Seriously. Um, just kidding Jacob we need we need you thank you Jacob mm-hmm. um, also in addition to that you could check out our old episodes we're going to do Frankenstein later this year of course mm-hmm. as we mentioned but if you want to hear about Wuthering Heights which is another gothic horror with some weird body stuff going on you can mm-hmm. check that out we covered that last year as well as you know some other stuff Kafka Kafka would be a great option as well if you're into this weird we've stuff we've also interviewed a lot of great authors so you should scroll yes. back through see if there's someone who catches your eye listen to that episode and then support them as well yeah ruthanna emrys was a great guest we chatted about horror with as well as sarah gailey premi muhammad premi muhammad <laughs> yeah god there's a lot of them um horror authors are the best so all right thanks guys check us out on social media at fire the cannon pod that is our name on instagram twitter and tiktok um tiktok especially we've got um some pretty funny videos that um i made and i'm very biased in calling them funny i have no idea if they're actually funny um, then we can also be emailed at firethecanonpodcast at gmail.com. Our website is firethecanonpodcast.com. And we also have a Facebook group, which is Fire the Cannon Podcast. All of those canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay. All right. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Should we sign off in a in a monster-appropriate way? Should we say, Grr. Well, it sounded more like a pirate. I think it's okay to just say bye. Okay, bye. (laughs)